You can turn with me to Psalm 98. Psalm 98, we make our way to this, and then we our series. We've been jumping around, starting with a psalm for Thanksgiving, and then we had thoughts towards the reflection of the end of a year, and look, he intends us to worship. If you want to worship God in the way that he intends us, his imminence, right, that, that he is, his transcendence, I mean, he's above all things. And yet, I wonder how often we consider the importance of joy. How often do you stir up the joy of worship in preparation? As we take the moment, it's a very brief moment there before we begin the worship service to prepare our hearts, to quiet our hearts before the Lord. Even, even that language of quieting our hearts before the Lord sort of leads us into a solemn state, right? A, a quiet state Maybe our hearts aren't so much filled or, or even thinking about joy in those moments. And yet this psalm will, will lead us there. It's, it's really, I think, the primary emphasis of this psalm, teaching us to be joyful in worship, to be filled with, with excitement in our singing. And so this psalm is very similar to Psalm 96, which we looked at last week, as well as Psalm 97, which we, we jumped over um, but all of these psalms from 93 to 100 fall into that section, which I, I mentioned last time, of, as sort of the royal psalter. They're, they're psalms sung to a king. And in fact, you'll see several similarities between Psalm 96, 97, and 98. Parallel themes of, of righteousness. Look in at verse 13 of chapter 96. Before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth, he will judge the world in righteousness. You see, uh, again, in 97 verse 2, clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Verse 6, the heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the peoples see his glory. And then our psalm this morning, 98.2, the Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. And again at verse 9, he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. You also have a theme of joy in all three of these psalms. Notice verses 11 and 12, let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field joy and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. In 97, verse 1, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad. In verse 8 of chapter 97, Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of their judgments, O Lord. And then in 98, verse 4, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. And then verse 6, with trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the king the Lord. So themes of righteousness and justice, I mean, themes of righteousness and joy go together in this psalm. Songs to a king. It's, it's God's righteousness that calls us to come before him with reverence. That's not a hard or difficult concept to understand, right? Because of his righteousness, because of his goodness, his holiness, when sinners come into his presence, we come with reverence, we come with awe. 
we come with humility. And that creates a dilemma for us, right? Because how do we respond with joy in that state? We're also commanded to respond with joy. So we'll see Psalm 98 has, has three sections here, three stanzas thinking about past, present, and future. Verses one through three is God has revealed his salvation in the past. Verses four through six is, is man responding with praise and joy in the present. And then verses seven through nine is the world pictured as, as praising God in the future. So before we read it, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for this psalm that teaches us this idea of, of righteousness and joy, of, of how your righteousness should be responded to with, with joy, with singing praise. And so help us to have the right frame of mind as we sit under this psalm, as we sit under its teaching, stir up in us the, the right emotions, that we would be filled with, with songs of praise, and that we would rightly respond to the work of your Spirit in our hearts. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. So read with me, Psalm 98, a psalm, O sing to the Lord a new song. For he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked outside of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the king the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, in your handout there, I've given you... um, the, the outline for this psalm and a summary sentence. Sing about the salvation that God has revealed with joyful anticipation of his return. So there's the past idea. Sing about his salvation that God has revealed with joyful anticipation. That's a present experience. You're joyfully anticipating in the present his future return. Okay, so you've got all three ideas there in that summary. And so we begin with your first point in verses one through three, the revelation of salvation. The revelation of salvation. Verse one says, oh, sing to the Lord a new song for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. We're called to sing a new song for the marvelous things the Lord has done. And namely, the work of his salvation. That is what should be the theme of our songs. Marvelous things. A phrase that we saw, in fact, at the beginning of our series in the Psalms, back in Psalm 9-1, it was translated wonderful deeds. So wonderful deeds are marvelous things. It's the same thing in Hebrew. And it's a reference to his miraculous acts of redemption. It reminds us of the Exodus. It reminds us of what he did 
for that generation, how he led them out, brought them into the wilderness, provided for them, sustained them where they had nothing else to sustain them, right? They had to depend upon God. And God took care of them despite their grumbling, despite their complaining, despite their desire to go back to Egypt. So it speaks of those kinds of miraculous acts of redemption. The salvation that we sing about can only be accomplished by the power of God. It's his right hand and his holy arm. Only he can do it. Only he is adequate or sufficient to the task. And so we don't sing about the depths of our love for God. It's his incomprehensible love for us that should fill our thoughts when we sing to him. That's the difference between God-centered worship and man-centered worship. We don't reflect upon ourselves. We talk about him, and it, and it changes how we feel. Right? It does have an impact upon us, but we don't talk about ourselves there like, like I, am, I am so in love. We talk about his love for us that's transformed this cold, dead heart and filled us with love for him. Right? We love because he first loved us. The Lord has made known, verse 2, the Lord has made known his salvation. He's revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. His salvation has been revealed to the nations. They have seen his righteousness. So God is the one who must reveal himself, and he has already done so, right, in creation. Maybe you're familiar with Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. This is speaking of creation, speaking to us. Knowledge being revealed through creation. Day to day, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. So is anyone exempt from God's revelation through creation? No, everyone has an idea of God's existence, but they suppress that truth as Romans 1 teaches us. And so their voice goes out through all the earth, their words to the end of the world. In them, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So speaking of God's creation there, and especially focusing on the sun in that latter portion that I read. So he's revealed himself through creation. He's also revealed himself through his redemption of Israel. The nations have seen the righteousness of the Lord through the salvation and preservation of his people. And so verse 3, he has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. And you think, well, that's limiting his redemption. But it says to the house of Israel, and then all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. So when God remembers Israel, he shows them favor. His love for Israel has been seen by the whole earth. Although the nations know of God's righteousness, it's the distinct privilege of Israel to know his steadfast love and faithfulness. And so his covenant people, they, they are the ones who know his covenant attributes. They're the ones who know God in relationship. 
in right standing with him. And because God has been faithful to Israel, salvation is available. It's made known to the world. It's seen by the nations. And so I I think this opening section should cause us to reflect, to consider that idea of revelation with a very personal touch, right? The personal experience that we've had of God's revelation. And I grew up attending church, but I certainly can remember distinct moments when the mystery of the gospel was made known to me, when it was revealed, when I began to see and make connections right, through conversations with my dad, with, with my pastors, uh, with my peers, who I began to hang out with more and more as I went to church. And I oftentimes talk about my conversion experience being at, at Hume Lake Summer Camp in 1990. The teacher was Dewey Bertolini. And I, I distinctly remember thinking, I've, I've never really understood my sin and the way it has separated me from God until now. Even though I had heard comments about that, I had sat under preaching that, that shared the gospel. I, I knew the gospel in one sense, but I, I really didn't know it, right, emotionally. I didn't know it in a true sense. And, and yet, when you think back about all of those, the ways that, that God was working, it was many seeds that were planted and watered, right, over the years, where the Lord was drawing me to himself. And it finally reached my, my mind and, and my heart, and, and everything changed, where I began to see the world differently. I began to think differently. And I I certainly didn't have it all together. I certainly had a lot of theological uh, confusion mixed up with that. But it was a a beginning to a long process of sanctification, right, of of growth in grace. And I think we can all reflect upon that. And I think that's what the value of kind of coming to the end of a year and, and focusing on this psalm, this opening of this psalm, I think the, those end-of-year reflections should begin here. Begin them with God's revelation of salvation. When did you see the Lord's salvation? Again, not your full knowledge of theology. That always takes maturity. But when did you come to a basic understanding of God's plan to save you from your sin? How did God reveal himself to you in such a way that you knew you were a sinner and that you knew you needed to be saved? Reflect upon that. The Lord has made known his salvation, and this is a song for the people of God to rejoice in that salvation, the salvation that God has brought. And so songs keep important truths before us. That we want songs that fill our minds with reminders of all that God has done. As we gather to sing of God's salvation, we do come with all of those personal experiences, those unique encounters with God. And that all fills the rest of our experience of worship. That's, that's, we gather together for corporate worship with all of those stories in the background. And they influence the experience of everyone else. 
as we share them and as we rejoice in what God has done. And so it serves to build up our joy, serves to increase our anticipation of what God will do even now. That's verses 4 through 6, the joy of salvation, the second point in your outline. And so we need songs like this, right? We need to, to be slowed down in one sense, to, to not be so quick to pass on from that first experience, that first encounter with God and his revelation. We're so quick to kind of just move beyond that, to fill our minds with fearful and discouraging experiences of yesterday or today or tomorrow, to be filled with worry rather than the joyful reminders of God's steadfast love and faithfulness. And so what can we do? Well, verse 4, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. The celebration of the good news of God's salvation is cause for the entire earth, for the whole earth to break forth into joyous songs of praise. And it's to involve the lyre and the sound of melody and the trumpets and the horn <coughs> to make a joyful noise to the Lord. It's, it's like the, the shout of joy that we talked about in Psalm 126 of, several weeks ago. And these are terms that refer to sort of the, the celebration of citizens who have who, who've heard the announcement that a victory has been won, a military victory. And so they're shouting for joy. It's the image of, of celebration erupting as soldiers return from battle victorious. Allow your mind and your heart to exult in the praise of God who so marvelously saved you. Take yourself there even now and to reflect upon that and to be stirred up with the joy of your salvation. Have you outgrown those squeals of delight that you enjoyed as a toddler? You're like, what are, where are we going with this? Toddlers, right, they get so overwhelmed with joy. In fact, I, I would have loved for, for a toddler just at this moment to, to squeal. I could say, see, perfect, exactly. That's the delight I'm talking about. Right? Sometimes it's not always delightful what we hear. But toddlers, they get overwhelmed with joy, right? So that the only thing they can do is squeal. They see a, a puppy run into their path or a, a stuffed animal, and, and they, they just start to you know, shake with excitement. They want to they wanna grab it. Their eyes get enlarged. Their, their mouth opens up because they, they want to... They, t- they want to taste this marvelous object of their delight. They want to enjoy it with every sense that they have. They can only let out an eek or a squeal. Toddlers instinctively know how to make a joyful noise. And as parents, I think it's obvious that we receive joy when we see that. We are filled with joy. We smile, and yet we're also oftentimes quick to go, shh, shh. Right? So there's this tension in us of like, oh, I'm so proud of you. You're so precious. I, I, I'd love to see you this delightful, but shh, you know, let's, let's not do that too much. It's got to be confusing, right, for the, for the toddler to, to understand what exactly they're supposed to do. 
And so instead of finding a, a proper place and time to make a joyful noise, we simply abandon the practice altogether. Right? That, let's, just, let's just not do it anymore. Unless, of course, the game is on or say yes to the dress. Right? Then we kind of start to feel some of that again. Now, let me set you at ease here. I certainly agree that it would be awkward if we all started squealing in worship like toddlers. You know, people would come in and think this is, is some new spiritual gift that this church has found or discovered or invented. I wouldn't even encourage you to go and act like that out in public. Or am I saying you should do that in, home, in your homes? But consider the sensation that, that provokes that kind of response. Consider the sensation that you feel. or that your child might feel when they do that. And try somehow to incorporate that into your worship. Every time you approach God in song, in prayer, every time you approach him in worship, in in corporate worship, in scripture reading, be filled with that kind of unconstrained joy. Seek more joy. Seek it next year. Seek it even now. Don't wait till next year. Right? Learn from your children here. To hear they're glad to see children present in the worship, to hear them, to hear their little noises. Right? To such belong the kingdom of God. We want to hear that. We should delight in it. Parents, don't be so quick to quiet them. And unless I'm preaching, of course. But no, uh, I'm, I'm talking to myself here. I, I need to hear that. To be reminded of what it's like to be filled with that kind of joy is a gift. Let's not squelch it. Now, at the same time, notice that... We didn't spend much time looking at it, but lyre, sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. So it's not just random chaotic shouts of joy, right? It's, it's accompanied with skillful musicians, with the lyre and the trumpet and and whatever other musicians we might incorporate today. There's a value of skilled musicians in worship. And so we see instruction to to sing with the sound of melody, to make it pleasant. The psalm doesn't encourage dissonance. It encourages consonance, right? it's, It's pleasant and beauty in song. That's how we sing to the king, because he's worthy. And yet, our pursuit of excellence should never hinder our joy. We shouldn't get so wrapped up into, into delivering songs with excellence that we're just focused on the sound. Or we're, we're focused on the tone or the tune instead of the joy of singing what we're singing about. Well, the psalm wraps up with the the call of salvation, verses 7 through 9. 
The call of salvation is your last point. Verse 7 says, Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together. So the, the call to worship extends to every creature in the sea and on the land. And in fact, the sea and the land themselves are part of the choir. We're all singing praise to the God. The rivers and the hills join in. Verse 9, before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. So all worship before the Lord because he is coming to judge in righteousness and equity. The creator king is coming to judge. And his judgment is with righteousness and equity. And everything, what, it, what it's talking about is the same thing we talked about last week verses in chapter 96, 11 through 13. You see almost parallel thought there of the heavens and the, the sea roaring, the field exulting, the trees of the forest singing for joy. It's creation joining in song to the king who comes to judge the earth. The, the concept is that at the fall, everything was corrupted, and at Christ's return, everything is renewed. Everything is restored. And yet there's still something difficult about this idea, isn't there? The hardest concept to accept is how a song about the joy of our salvation would conclude with judgment. How is judgment a proper conclusion to a psalm about joy? The psalmist seems to even be looking forward to this future judgment. It's similar to chapter 97, Psalm 97, verse 8. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. It is because of the fact that God is coming to judge that we are filled with joy. And so, yes, it's done with righteousness and equity, but that doesn't change the fact that his judgment will leave some condemned. Ninety-seven verse three says, "Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around." So the fire that represents his holiness and his magnificence, his uniqueness, is also going to burn up his adversaries. We see this in Exodus, Exodus chapter nineteen, verse eighteen. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke before the Lord had descended on it, or because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And the Lord said to Moses, in verse 21, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. So so the people of Israel were called to the base of the mountain, and Moses goes up to the top of the mountain. The Lord descends in fire and smoke, and then Moses is sent back down to tell the people, don't, don't think about crossing the base of this mountain. 
Don't get up there and try to look because you'll perish. And their response was reflected again in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 24 through 26. Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have and has still lived? So their response was, Moses, you continue to talk to God. We'll stay far away because we'll die. We'll be consumed if we listen, if we hear. Isaiah prophesied in chapter 33, verse 14, the sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless so the godless and the trembling godless sinners are then saying, asking these questions, who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? So is the psalmist simply here in Psalm 98 ignoring all of that? Or ignoring those aspects of judgment and merely focused on this idea that at judgment creation is restored, right? So we can joyfully anticipate the restoring of all things. I don't think so. The righteousness of God demands the satisfaction of his justice. So God must do what is right and just. And what the psalmist seems to be reacting to is such a sincere love for God as he has revealed himself as a righteous and just and holy God that he delights to see God's righteousness expressed. And so the question for us is, are, are, are we content to see God mocked by those who reject him? Would anyone be content to witness unbelief or the rejection of God's mercy and grace any longer than God has and will patiently endure their mockery? If we can't rejoice in his justice and in his righteousness being poured out, then, then we have a low view of God's holiness and what it demands of people, of his creatures. So yes, let us rejoice that God will accomplish all his holy will in his perfect timing. And he is showing his patient endurance with a world that has rejected him. But let us look forward with, with hope to this triumphant conclusion when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Until God is satisfied, there can be no salvation. And so our sin has to be dealt with. That's why we need to be saved in the first place. Alec Mateer writes, salvation has to satisfy holiness or it's not salvation. But we've actually already seen this in verse 1 of chapter 98. 
Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. It's all wrapped up right there in the first verse. His holy arm has worked salvation. The son seated at his right hand is the epitome of God's holiness and salvation. Right? The righteousness of God is perfectly reflected in the son who covers us by his substitutionary atonement. He dies in our place. He takes the penalty that we deserve that satisfies the righteous demands of our maker, of our God, so that we can, by faith, become children of God. It's because of Christ that God is both just and justifier. And that's what we read in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It is because of Jesus Christ that we can now sing, God is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Let's pray.